This bourbon conversation is brought to you today by Knob Creek. Welcome to another edition of Life Behind Bars. I'm Noah Rothbaum, the Daily Beast Half Full Editor. Joining me, as always, is my colleague and co-host, David Weintrich. How are you, Dave? All right. How are you? Feeling good today, talking about one of our favorite topics here at uh, Life well, Behind booze. Bars. Booze, of course. <laughs> I mean... I mean, really. They're all of our favorite yeah. topics. We're allowed to choose children, I think. Bourbon and American whiskey is definitely near and dear to both of our hearts. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And we you you spend a lot of your time writing about it. I do. My last book, The Art of American Whiskey, was obviously about American whiskey. Um, you know, well, I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine if it wasn't. I mean, you could call a book anything these days. It's true. So. It's true. It's, true. it's uh, or or all types of uh, mm-hmm. whiskey is is labeled mm-hmm. all types mm-hmm. of ways. So, I mean, the uh, book's not a not a coming of age story. <laughs> of, uh, I it did the best the best comment I think on. Uh, Amazon is somebody was very irate that it was not a how-to book. Yeah. They're like, they like, I mean, it's it's beautiful and all, but like, well, I thought it was going to be how-to. Like, you know, I, I got an whiskey. I got an Amazon comment on my book Imbibe, which is like the history of American right. cocktails. I've read it a couple of times. That, that it was uh, just uh, that this book really sucks because it all it is is old drinks. <laughs> I mean, it kind of warns you on the cover that it's old drinks. <laughs> that the old-time illustration. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that I left that comment. I was, I was <laughs> well, irate. You were irate. You know, it was a long it was, night. It uh, wasn't what you were expecting. No, I, you know. I sorry, mean, where's Dave. the vodka soda? Exactly. exactly. How do I make a vodka soda? <laughs> it's in there somewhere. All right, let's talk whiskey. Even for us ardent fans who'd been drinking and writing about American whiskey when we could, whenever you mm-hmm. know we could convince you know any publication to allow us to spill a little bit of ink about American whiskey. Uh, you know, if you told me 20 years ago that this giant boom was coming for American whiskey, I don't think I would have believed you. Oh, hell no. I mean, it was so down. The 70s is really the high water mark for American whiskey. And then it's, you know, 1970. And then it's, I think, basically 30 years almost straight down for sales. Yeah. Just, and it had been wobbling before that, to be honest. I mean, yeah. it had some high sales years. but. They weren't really building uh, institutions. They yeah. Were, they were stripping out inventory. Definitely a golden age, like, you know, after after World War II, you know, mm-hmm. it takes some time for the brands to sort of, they'd all been retrofitted to make stuff for the war, so kind of go back to producing I mean, whiskey and rebuilding. That and sort of whiskey. sowed the seeds of their destruction, too, because yeah. to get the whiskey out, they were selling blended with whiskey with Absolutely. very little whiskey and a lot of vodka in it. Absolutely. And uh, people... Eventually right. said, "Why don't we just drink the vodka instead of this stuff?" Or other types of whiskeys coming yeah. from you know Scotch yeah, yeah. or stuff. I mean, it was. I mean, it, it takes time finally to get the good mm-hmm. stuff, the straight stuff, you know, on the on store shelves again. And, and in some ways, you know, for some of the categories, it was too late. I mean, yeah. rye is rye was dead twenty years ago. I yeah. mean, it was. You could find a bottle in one liquor store out of five, and there was only one brand. Uh, Overholt was it. And that was, I mean, it was <laughs> you know? yeah, I mean, it, you could find, you know, I remember seeing, you know, my sister got me a bottle of the Jim Beam rye, the yellow label yep, one. Yep, But really, you know, rye was, you know. Oh, that was a novelty. And, but even, but starting even in the 50s, 60s, 70s, rye, just that steady decline. Oh, it fell off, it, a, just, it fell off a cliff sometime around 1950 and, you know, it never, yeah, and it, then it just like bounced once and then lay there. 
Yeah, I mean, it was you know it was so bad you know for so long that mm-hmm. the distillers were making rye one day a year. Yeah, I mean, rye day. But it looked like bourbon was going to go this down the same route. Well, right. I mean, that's the sort of scary thing. I mean, it sort of for a long time Kentucky was producing you know all the rye and pretty mm-hmm. much all the bourbon, and it's like not because they traditionally made rye; it's just because. They were what was left. <laughs> right. I mean, they saw an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. They made whiskey. So it all kind of collected there. And whiskey drinkers, I have to say, were a little worried. You know what I mean? It was, yeah. you know, there weren't a lot of new brands, new innovations, nothing, you know, coming out. No, there, so. there were there were a couple in the late 80s that, yeah. that sort of set the stage. Right. I mean, you've got uh, the old granddad, uh, 114 proof. That right. was a big deal. And then we, even more than that, though. And we, we have a special guest coming up a little bit later in this episode, Fred No, who's obviously Jim Beam's great-grandson, who will talk a little bit more about, you know, his family and his dad, Booker, who's yeah, who, a legend who helps rebirth whiskey. And a lot of those whiskeys came out of his mind, partially just because I think, really, he was bored, you know. It was not, you know, you're producing the same whiskeys yeah. year in and year out. And, you know, you know he, he was also, he was goddamn stubborn. Right. He, he didn't want to, like, yeah. make trendy stuff. He wanted to make real yeah. whiskey. Yeah. And what, what did he like to drink? Real whiskey. It's kind of funny. I mean, now there are all types of whiskey trends. You know? Oh, my they're, God, yeah. There, You know, people are always asking about all types of stuff and whiskeys mm-hmm. from all over the world. And sometimes I laugh because we're so spoiled now. I mean, yeah. there, you know, there's there probably more whiskeys on my desk and under my desk <laughs> today than there were available. Yeah, then if you wanted to, if you I wanted mean, to Aster Liquors right. back in the day, no, it was like you'd see two shelves. Right. Yeah, I mean, that yeah. was it. I mean, it's, yeah. it's you and I talk about these things, and you know, for people who either were in America or or in, you know of drinking age and or didn't care about whiskey, it seems like we're making it up. But it really was that bad. I mean, it was. It was. Part of it was the rebirth of the cocktail, you know, people Mm -hmm. looking for, you know, wine to make drinks with higher proof spirits, you know, whiskeys, you know, wanting to use rye in the Manhattans or, you know, reading, Mm -hmm. you know, books like yours and, you know, wine to make old fashions and other stuff and looking for different types of whiskey, you know, that just really weren't available, just something new. I think part of it also is a little bit... Uh, is due to the micro distillers, yeah. not because of the whiskey they made, although that's finally yeah. like coming of age, but it made young people pay attention because yeah. it, it's like, oh, whiskey is crafty. Right. You know, whiskey right. is cool. It's like you make it from grain. <laughs> they learned about <laughs> distilling from their it's friends, true. you know, and uh, I think you're right. It was sort of a two pronged attack. Yeah. And in, this is one of the few industries where I think. Both the small guys and the big guys were able to establish their, like, craft credibility, you yeah. know, and say, look, like, you know, for all these years, you've kind of, like, you know, <laughs> you've taken us for granted. But, you know, just because we make a lot of whiskey, we still make it, like, the way that we've always made it for the We still put it like, in these same damn oak and <laughs> barrels, right? You know? Still, we still, still use corn. Here's the corn. This is, you know, we're yeah. using the same still, yep. the same barrels, the same I mean, brick houses. They're not I mean, making it out of tofu. No, 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 not yet. <laughs> not um, yet. Not yet. It's I mean, not, it's not, you know, kombucha or something. No, I mean, some, if anything, some of the craft guys have gone to those weird extremes where yeah. they're using, you know... Uh, all types of quinoa and you know funky stuff to uh, which you know nothing wrong with that but it's well, just, it's you know it's 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 now it's a wide market and there's absolutely. room for weird it's, stuff it's just fine i mean it's one of these yeah. things where you know you go there and and it's not marketing i mean you you make it down to kentucky you go to these distilleries they really are in the middle of nowhere a lot mm-hmm. of them and mm-hmm. 
even if they wanted to do things differently, I don't. Well, <laughs> it I mean, take forever to get a new type of still there. And, yeah, and, you, know, and uh, you know, they've got so much invested in just just making it the same way, you know, yeah. and uh, and that way is pretty conservative. Yeah. I mean, it's basically a, a late 1930s, early 1940s yeah. way of making whiskey, and that's yeah. still what they do. Truly pre-prohibition whiskey, and and yeah, know, maybe even repeal era, yeah. you know. You think even yeah, yeah. Some of the pre-prohibition stuff fell away. Yeah, uh, some of the, the like the using chamber stills right. and sure. uh, some Wooden of some stills, of, yeah, uh, heated warehouses, right. all that stuff. Kind yeah. of uh, after yeah. repeal, that was gone. But yeah. but you know, from when they rebuilt the industry in the 1930s, they haven't changed the basic technology really at all. No. Thank goodness. I'm not yeah. asking them to. No, no. They, <laughs> they, so. they figured don't. out how to do it well. This is not a challenge. Yeah. Do, do not rethink <laughs> yeah. this part. You no. know, give me a bottle of Booker's yeah. and right. I'm a happy right. man. Exactly. You know? I mean, and, and I think it's one of these interesting things where, yeah. you know, Booker's, you know, Knob Creek, the whole, you know, small batch collection, It, you know, now it seems not that revolutionary. But at the time yeah. when those things were coming out and the way that they looked like, the different bottle shape. I mean, obviously, I talk a lot mm -hmm. about this in my book, but like the different bottle shapes and the, you know, all of the time that was spent on the packaging was a very unique concept for the time. Where for so long nobody, nobody. Yeah, cared. I mean, I mean, it was they took the marketing that had been attached to Scotch. Right. I mean, this was uh, Booker's idea. It was Elmer T. Lee's right, idea. Sure. It was a couple other people, yeah, but sure. but they said, you know. Those people are selling this stuff right. as if it's good whiskey. Right. Why don't we sell ours as if right. it's good whiskey? Right. And they're like, <laughs> Which you it know, is. It was a struggle. Like, you know, even in the industry to get yeah. people to buy in, to understand. Oh, yeah. Oh, it took a long time. What we're now seeing is those seeds were so – you have to sow your seeds a, a long, long time. time. Yeah. The rebirth, you know, was slow coming. But, it, you know, the steps that we saw in the late 90s, early 2000s is sort of what I mean, has given birth. I knew the battle was won about – Seven or eight years ago, when I was walking through the uh, part of Manhattan, colloquially known as Hell Square, where all the uh, clubs are sure. and stuff in the Lower East Side, where where it's all young people right. going out and drinking. And I saw a sign out in front of a bar. 20 years ago, those signs were for like uh, Long Island iced teas right. or whatever, uh, Apple teenies. And it was advertising their old fashioned. <laughs> and I'm Amazing. like, okay. This is it. We've you won. know, we've won. We've won. I can, yeah, yeah. can put down the muddler. Yeah, game over. Game over. It's fine. You know, and it's true. It's, it's true. I mean, it's, uh, it's very gratifying, you know, I think, you know, for, for a lot of us who are involved in uh, writing about whiskey and, and, and even as mm -hmm. whiskey drinkers, uh, you know, it's nice to be able to walk into a bar and not have to, like, you know, peer through binoculars to see, you know, the one whiskey, <laughs> yeah, you, know, yeah. you know, 30 feet away. I mean, yeah, you know. or, or drink, like, you know, blended whiskey or... Right. Or, or Bartender pick it up yeah, off the dust. Plastic bottle you know. Canadian yeah, or... exactly, or, whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean that's, that's not a concern. I mean, no. when it, back in the day, it was. I mean, where you're like, I want to drink whiskey. What bar are we going to go to? Yeah. Like, you know, you had to actually yeah, go yeah, to a yeah. bar where now well, it's they had like, made more than three bottles of whiskey. Right yeah. now, it's just, if anything, I'm like, enough. We have Fred No calling in now, and we'll uh, chat with him right now. So. All right. Awesome. Welcome back. We have a special guest with us today, Fred No, who's the seventh generation Beam family master distiller and the great grandson of Jim Beam. How are you doing, Fred? I'm doing great. 
Great, Noah. I'm great. Thanks for, for joining us today. Um, bourbon is near and dear to my heart as it is uh, to you. Uh, I feel like bourbon's running through your veins. So you were, you were, grew up in the heart of bourbon country and uh, in, in one of the most famous bourbon families. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> there might be some flowing through my veins. I don't know. But yeah. yeah, growing up, Booker's son and Jim Beam's great-grandson was, you know, uh, a heck of an experience for me. You know, I was around bourbon. And the distilleries all my life, from the time I was a little boy, yeah. you know, fishing in the lakes and just walking around with Dad, watching him check everything, and on weekends and stuff when I wasn't in school. So it was a playground for a little boy, you know, trucks and trains, <laughs> all can, the stuff going on. I can only imagine. Well, you're, I mean, your dad, Booker, no, I mean, obviously a, a whiskey legend, you know, one of the people who really, you know, sustained American whiskey through the dark days and, and helped bring it back. I mean, you know, he, you know, one of his big innovations was the, you know, the small batch collection that includes, you know, a lot of, you know, famous whiskeys. And can you talk a little bit about like, you know, how your dad developed that collection and, and you sort of in particular, you know, Knob Creek um, and, and, and how, you know, how he came up with those ideas? The evolution is kind of a, it's a story in itself of small batch collection that there was the dad had been playing around with barrels and tasting barrels from different parts of the rock house. And he had, he knew that barrels from the center of the rock house had different flavor than barrels from the top and bottom. And we were wanting to give the company as a whole, wanted to present our distributor partners with some special gifts at Christmas time yeah. back in 1987. So they asked Dad to come up with a, you know, a, a special liquid for me. So I got it. I know what exactly what I'm going to do. It's something I've been uh, kind of playing with. And he, he had some barrels right out of that center cut, as he called it, <clears throat> the fifth floor of the nine-story aging rack houses. And they wanted to bottle the bourbon exactly like he remembered the stories from his childhood where Jim Beam talked about people coming to the distillery and they pulled the bourbon straight from the barrel and filled up the people's containers straight from the barrel at cast strength. So at that time, there were no cast strength bourbons or even, I don't even think there was any cast strength whiskey at all being sold anywhere. But Dad, you know, brought this to, to life and we hand bottled these bottles we were going to give his gifts he hand wrote the labels and we presented them to distributor partners of ours as christmas gifts well the response was so overwhelming he said well let's take it to market that was how small batch was was born i mean as a gift you know that dad presented to friends of the company and then shortly thereafter that's when he created the whole collection you know booker's is bottled uncut unfiltered straight from the barrel it's a big bold flavor but he wanted to do some explore different taste profiles right and dad was always a big fan of one of our lab labels that goes way back in history old tub which was a hundred proof bottled in bond bourbon which as you know post prohibition that was a a sign of high quality bourbon it was a gold standard yeah right Exactly. So he mimicked the bottled in bond, and we had an old product from years and years ago, bonded beam. Dad went back and kind of combined old tub and bonded beam, which you had a hundred proof, you know, nine year old bourbon, 
And in the packaging, they went back and researched and looked at pre-prohibition bottles, you know, in old archives from all over the industry. And they found this apothecary bottle that had the shape of the Knob Creek bottle. Mm. And even to the point, they found some bottles where people had taken newspaper and wrapped them around the bottles and written on the newspaper the label name. I guess times were tough and they were, you know, recycling even back in the early, early, early days of packaging. And so if you look at a Knob Creek label, even, you know, it's it's got a little newsprint on it. And uh, that was kind of mimicking that. That's where we got the packaging. And we brought that. That baby to life, Dad did, in the early 90s. Right. But about that time, he was ready to slow down his travel. That was the first brand that he put me on the road promoting was Knob Creek. So it is very special to my heart. I had a, the Knob Creek Fred No Live Tour, where I would go in a market for a week. I mean, this is when Knob Creek was in its infancy. And we would go in on-premise accounts in the evenings and off-premise accounts during the day and hand-sold Knob Creek. It took a little persuasion to get people to expand their bourbon lineup because then wasn't like today where bourbon, everybody was looking for bourbon. Then they were wondering, why do we need another bourbon? Now, bourbon's not selling. That was in the age of the flavored vodkas and all the other products. But usually what sold them was when we would open the bottle of Knob Creek and take a little drink and show them that Hey, this is some special liquid, especially on on premise. When you started, because the bartenders were now becoming mixologists, you know, all of a sudden their titles were changing and they were seeing themselves as more like culinary. Yeah, sure. And Knob Creek made great Manhattan and old fashioned because of the big flavor. It stood up well to the vermouth. And once we got it in their mouths and then they started serving it, it was kind of like snowball effect, but that's. Really what rekindled the fire under bourbon was Dad's innovation with the small batch bourbon and Knob Creek leading the charge for that collection. Well, how do you think the bourbon tasted before Prohibition? He had a little bit of whiskey that was made before then. We always kind of laughed at it. It seemed to be more medicinal than what we do today. And now it's been in a bottle for a long time, too, so it could have been affected somewhat. But it was a, a different different style and the whiskey had a different mouthfeel you know but probably a little the corn oils were a little heavier back mm. then than yeah. it seemed like now but that's what he wanted to do was get back to where the big flavor that yeah. was the whole thing on uh, on knob creek that's what knob creek's always been we have guardrails when we look at knob creek and innovations and everything connected with the with the brand knob creek it's got to be a big bold flavor yeah and try to, if there's a way, mimic pre-prohibition, possibly, style. People who enjoy Knob Creek enjoy the big flavor of it. It's not for the the guys looking for a real light, easy, nine times out of ten, probably in a cocktail or maybe over the rocks. Yeah. You know, there are a few people that sip it neat, but being 100 proof, it tends to need to be, but I think a drop or two of water cuts it open opens it up too. Yeah. Cut it a little bit and opens it up. How did how did your dad like to drink it? He did it with a little water and if it was summertime a cube or two of ice. Not a lot of ice. Yeah. Dad was never a big cold drink person. We were fishing, take a beer out of the cooler and sit it beside him on the on the in the boat. Wait for the beer to warm up a little <laughs> bit before he drank it. Yeah, most people wanted the cold beer, but he right. he wasn't a big ice person. That's why I think he enjoyed his travels to Europe. 
so much because you know very little <laughs> ice in Europe. It's true. Still Not that he was against putting ice in bourbon, but he just didn't. Yeah. You know? yeah. He didn't like it cold. He liked closer to room temperature. But that was just his style. But he would always say, "Make it any damn way you want," you know. So yeah, mom drank hers with her bourbon with ginger ale. I never saw him give her a hard time for doing it. So, yeah. I mean, it was okay. Yeah, sure. It's delicious. Why not? I kind of love the image of your dad. I know that he and his cousin, Carl, would, would compete on like, you know, yield, you know, for, you know, each bushel of corn, right? And then... Oh, yeah. And then your dad was running the distillery down in Boston, Kentucky. And I mean, I never got a chance to talk to Booker about it, but I kind of feel like he came out of this idea, like of the small batch, just to do different stuff. Like, you know, like oh, yeah. sort of his innate curiosity to... He always had a curiosity. Yeah, you're right. For flavor. In everything he did. I mean, we, we cure country hams, me and him did together, and he would tweak his cure every year looking for just a little bit of, he'd do something the regular way, but we'd do one or two a different way. Yeah, exactly. To see if there was any way to improve on what he had. I mean, he was uh, he was always searching for a little bit better, and I think, it, I know that's what he did on the bourbon side. I know on the yields that you mentioned, the competition between the two distilleries yeah. was was epic that they yeah. <laughs> wanted to squeeze another drop of alcohol out of that bushel of corn, you know. Yeah. It was something they could hang their hat on as, you know, an accomplishment. How'd you do it? And then they just share it with their, right. with the other plant, you know, and it was always a, a running competition between Dad and Uncle Carl, like I always called him. I don't think people understand, like, just how unique it was, because at the time, it wasn't a thing. You know, you made a bourbon. That was the bourbon you made. You made maybe one or two varieties all year, every year. That's what yep. the market wanted. There was no need to innovate. Nobody wanted you to innovate. Now, now of course, like, you know, uh, distilleries make God, you know, some places 10, 12 different whiskeys, you know, a year. You know, that's their standard portfolio plus special editions. And But then back in the day, it was way more streamlined and i think you know what made booker so special was that he did it kind of for himself what you were saying about the hams was just for him to do because he was interested in it not because yep. you know the market was demanding it or you know oh, the, yeah, the market wasn't demanding he was creating the market to be honest yeah. for super premium uh bourbons i mean if you look a lot of our competitors who when they had released small batch collection who they mimicked or kind of said yeah. booker nobody's going to give that kind of money for bourbon <laughs> because nobody was seeing it right. yes they will right once people taste it and you teach them but i think a lot of it was educating the consumer yeah sure was a big thing we had to get out there on the road dad did and then be showing people what it was all about and it wasn't just the same old bourbon that you'd always seen that your grandfather had drank or your father had drank. Yeah, These bourbons were meant to be sipped and savored and there was a lot of tender loving care that went into each and every bottle with extra age and higher strengths, different uh, mash bills, all the things that you know made bourbon good that you had to explain it because people didn't know. Everybody's vision right. of bourbon was cowboy belling up to a bar Give me a shot of whiskey. And they put it in a shot glass, you throw it back, you grimace, and then you do something, you know, go on to run off your road to horse across the desert. That wasn't what it was about. It was about enjoyment and enjoying what you were drinking, you know. 
But the Cowboys didn't make it look like they enjoyed drinking the whiskey. It was, uh, but that was kind of the old, the old envision that, that yeah. everybody had. And we, Dad laughed about that, and he said, you know, that if you present it right and get get it in people's mouths, the sales will come. He said, "You'll see, you'll see, son." That's I said, "Well, I hope you're right," because you know that was towards his end of his life. You know, he died in 2004. The bourbon was just starting to take a hold real good. I'm sure he's looking down and saying, I knew it was going to happen. <laughs> I knew it was going to happen. It was just a matter of time. He just, yeah. I hated it. He's not around to see the results of all the hard work and his forethought that he, he did. Some of the people who laughed at him when he released those small batch bourbons are now doing the same thing, you know? So oh, absolutely. That, absolutely. That's what was, uh, what was really cool to see that. I can remember some of them kind of laughing and saying, nobody will give $50 for a bottle of bourbon. We both know $50 is a joke now, you know. <laughs> Especially for those bottles. If you, if anybody out there has any of those original small bags collection bottles. Yeah, you want to sell them for 50 bucks? Yeah, let them, yeah. <laughs> we'll pay $50. <laughs> yeah, if you had an original bottle of Booker's, it was $50. Okay. Yeah. You see, I mean, occasionally they show up. There's a, there's a photo. I found one from my book, The Art of American Whiskey. There's a photo of one of the original bottles in there. That And it's uh, a bar in Detroit was was had on its shelf, which was pretty cool. But Every now and then you see them. You know, they're, yeah. they're easy to distinguish because they're in, in brown wax. Same bottle, but the design, a little different. Looking back over the last, I don't know, 150-odd years, you know, it's definitely cyclical, right? We have booms and busts and different cycles. Do you think that, like, that's still what we're in, or, like, do you think we've broken well, I think out we're of that? Still on the, we're still on a good side of the, yeah. of the boom. I mean, if you look, I mean, all trends are up. Jim Beam White Label uh, is doing very, very well. It's up this year. We don't see an end in sight. Yeah. We're continuing to build aging rack houses and increasing production at the at our distilleries yeah. to keep up with the demand. You know, that's the thing that makes bourbon a, a unique product because you make it today and in the instance of Knob Creek, you'll sell it almost a decade from now. You know, a lot can happen in a decade. When you get to my age, you just hope you're still around when it comes <laughs> out of the barrel, you know? Yeah. The, and like the cognac people say, they lay it down for their kids or their grandkids, you know, and I think that's kind of the same idea and I, I kind of like that idea that there's whiskey that you know potentially you know that booker laid down that's kind of your legacy you know is yeah. the stuff you leave behind and now that freddie is involved in the business and he's working on taking over the reins i mean he'll he'll be touching hopefully we'll be working together on some yeah. projects that'll go into the future even further and now that he's got a, a little boy booker we knew Frederick Booker know the fifth. Who knows? The ninth generation could be another Booker coming walking the distillery grounds. It's like his great grandfather. So with a name like Booker No, I think he's destined to work with you guys at the distillery. I don't I don't want to decide it for him now, but it would be pretty right, hard. Right, it's kinda of hard. He's only a year old. <laughs> it would be very hard for him to get out of that, I think. <laughs> he may tell us to <laughs> go take a flying leap or something. He wants to be a jet pilot or something who knows but he, he'll be uh, around the distillery just like i was yeah. and freddie was as a child yeah. it'll have to be and he's got the inquisitive nature about him just like his, his dad and his his grandfather and his great great grandfather great grandfather booker so there's a, 
there's a chance you'll follow in those footsteps for sure. It's definitely something in your blood. That's that's for sure. Yeah, it kind of has to be in your blood. The bourbon industry is a, is a it's more of a lifestyle than a job. I mean, you're you're pretty much on. You're into it or you're not. You yeah. Know, you're, you're thinking about work when you're not physically at the distillery. Yeah. Seems like 24 hours a day. You know, there's always something to to think about or consider, and we're always trying to come up with new products and all that kind of stuff. Well, it's funny because most people, they leave their job and they go home and they have a Knob Creek or they have a whiskey, you know, and that's how they get away from their work, right? Or their, what they're stressing for for, for those (laughs) of us in this industry. It's kind of funny. It's like sometimes it's hard because you to shut off your mind when you go home because, you know, want a whiskey and but then that leads you to think about for me more stories to do or podcast yeah, episodes thinking about or, all the, yeah, yeah, yeah. or all the other about stuff. what can we do next right, exactly next innovation yeah <laughs> you know what can we do a little differently to come up with another innovation for say a knob creek or yeah something, which is always a that's the challenge of it and that's what keeps us you know what keeps our jobs interesting is we can come up with new things absolutely and play with stuff which is good. I mean, Dad always said it was funny when I was growing up. You know, working in the distillery is boring. You know, if everything's going good, it just runs along and there's nothing. But that was before the age of small batch. Yeah. And Knob Creek and visitor centers that see 125,000 visitors a year. Unbelievable. You know, that was, you know, back when you went to work and it was 9 to 5, but or 7.30 to 4.30, whatever his job is, hours were. But when he... Got done, he came home, but he thought about the distillery, but when it broke down, he was there. Yeah. It wasn't it just travel around the world like I do. Yeah. Meeting whiskey uh, fans from all parts of the world, you know. It wasn't a very glamorous job. No, it's true. You know, it was it was just a management of a industrial facility. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but now it's, it's evolved into, like I said, I just got back from Europe. I was in yeah. Europe for 10 days. We were in Rotterdam. Uh, Holland there, Saturday night, 200 people, 250 actually, showed up for a bourbon taste in a movie theater. They did it in a, a movie theater, took a brand new movie off the screen and allowed us to do this thing. It was a gamble on our distributor's part because they had to pay a lot of money to get that space. Sure. But it worked. people showed up. Yeah. And I was hesitant. I mean, it almost makes me think of back in the day when Dad First introducing small bats around in Knob Creek. He went to Miami and went down there, and there were seven people showed up. <laughs> the luckiest seven people in the world, if you ask me. Well, he, he, when he got home, I would take him you know, to the airport and pick him up. He said, that was a wasted trip. I said, why is that? He said, oh, seven people. I said, what are you talking seven? Wait a minute now. Five of them were on the payroll. Said, what do you mean? <laughs> he said, well, two worked for Beam, three worked for Southern Wine and Spirits. So there was two right. consumers. Right. It came to the restaurant for this taste. Right. <laughs> I went back a few years later after the things had been seated a little bit. And I had a couple hundred show up. Yeah. So the work of Dad in the beginning, you know, oh, paid yeah. off. Oh yeah. In tenfold, it was it was wild to watch the evolution of bourbon. You know, we talked about that earlier. I remember seeing your dad at um, some whiskey events and being too intimidated to go up to him. And, and to be honest, it's one of the great regrets of uh, my career is, is not going up and saying hello and, you know, chatting with him and meeting him and, and hearing a little bit about from him, you know, how, how he created all these amazing bourbons. We definitely toast his legacy a lot um, as we drink oh, all yeah. those all those whiskeys. That he he would have to... struck a conversation with you, well, for sure. <laughs> Dad never met a stranger. I mean, that was, I don't know why, you know, he was kind of an intimidating looking guy, big burly dude, you know, but 
he loved to talk about his his product and to educate people. He yeah. was always wanting to teach people what bourbon was about. He was a global ambassador for bourbon as a whole. And because I think that's one thing about our bourbon industry, nobody ever said anything negative about each other's products. We all talk positively about bourbons. I mean, they make everyone makes their bourbon their way, and it's a little different. But there's no bad ones. Right. It's the ones we make and they make, and it's all good. We have a lot of fun with it. There is a camaraderie amongst us that we give each other a hard time, but in the end, we're all we all stick together very closely. Thank you so much, Fred. Always a pleasure to chat with you about bourbon. Uh, looking forward to uh, hopefully drinking some bourbon together uh, in the near future. Absolutely, absolutely. If you ever done our way, please stop by. If I get your way, I'll stop by and see you. That sounds great. Take care. Always good to chat with Fred. Always a pleasure to hear him out. Looking forward to drinking some whiskey with you, Dave. Uh, Probably now. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. Knob Creek reminds you to drink smart. Knob Creek, Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey, 50% alcohol by volume. Copyright 2019, Knob Creek Distilling Company, Claremont, Kentucky.